You're listening to 3 and 30 Takeaways for Moms, and this episode is sponsored by Factor, the meal delivery service that provides fresh, ready-prepared meals to support even the busiest of lifestyles. I often overlook sitting down for a good lunchtime meal, and I know I'm not alone in that. I'm usually racing the clock to get as much work done as possible before I have to pick my kids up from school, and the thought of stopping to make myself a decent meal just sounds like too much work. I love Factor because their food is delicious, fresh, and super convenient. All you have to do is heat it for two minutes and enjoy. I have especially enjoyed the sun-dried tomato chicken and the stuffed pepper casserole, and the pre-made smoothies are tasty and refreshing. If you want to cut back on grabbing takeout or eating handfuls of chips for lunch, Factor would be a great option. Not only is Factor cheaper than takeout, but their nutritious meals are chef-prepared, dietitian-approved. Get America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit to start saving time, eating well, and living your best year ever. Head to factormeals.com slash 3in3050 and use code 3in3050 to get 50% off your first box. That's code 3in3050 at factormeals.com slash 3in3050 to get 50% off your first box. Welcome to 3in30, a podcast for moms who want to create more meaning in motherhood. Each 30-minute episode will feature three doable takeaways for you to try at home with your family this week. I'm your host, Rachel Nielsen. Thank you so much for being here. Today's episode, we're going to be discussing how to navigate our parenting triggers. But first, what is a trigger? Well, originally, the word was simply defined as a small device that releases a spring or catch and so sets off a mechanism. Thank you, Webster.com, for that definition. Within a parenting context, I think that definition works, too, with a few tweaks. A trigger in parenting is a small action or behavior, often done by our children, that releases a spring within us, the parent, and sets off a reaction. This reaction can sometimes feel like it is exploding out of us against our will, much like a real-life trigger was pulled inside of us. So what do we do with our internal triggers? Can we tame them, get rid of them altogether? Are triggers always a bad thing, or do they sometimes protect us? We're going to discuss those questions and so much more in today's episode with Nat Wickedset. Nat is a licensed clinical psychotherapist, a graduate school lecturer, a social justice practitioner, and a podcast host. Her organization, Come Back to Care, helps parents break free from the family patterns that they no longer want to pass down to future generations. Nat is a transgender Asian immigrant from Thailand, and she says she is passionate about helping parents go from parenting on autopilot to bold, conscious, and decolonized parenting most of the time. I love her emphasis on most of the time because none of us is going to parent in a way that is perfectly aligned with all of our values all of the time. But we can take small steps every day towards parenting with more compassion and self-awareness. My conversation with Nat was such a delight, and I can't wait to share it with you. So here we go. Nat, welcome to 3 and 30. I am thrilled to have you here today. I am so honored to be here, Rachel. Well, this is such an important topic about navigating our triggers, and I know you have done deep work with this, both through your extensive education on the topic but also through your own personal life experiences. I've been listening to your podcast, and I have loved how vulnerable and open you are talking about your relationship with your own parents and how 
you're learning together to heal and to navigate triggers and to build the relationship that you want. And I just want to thank you for being so open and honest about your own work through this journey. Absolutely, Rachel. I feel like the topic of trigger is very important because we all have it and it does not Mm. define us. And a lot of Mm. us, parents especially, would go down this rabbit hole of trying to get rid of the triggers. And I'm excited to Mm. share with you and your listeners another way, perhaps, instead of getting rid of the triggers, perhaps we can integrate them and befriend them so that we don't pathologize Mm. them, but we put them in a context. Yes, I totally agree. I feel like we can feel so much shame for being triggered. It wouldn't yeah. really, every human being has triggers and there's no shame in being triggered. It's just learning what to do with those triggers. And I think that leads really well into your first takeaway. So how do we learn how to do that? Absolutely. So the first takeaway, Rachel, I want to start with the why. Why do we have the trigger in the first place? And we're going to contextualize that in the context of our neurobiology. Mm, okay. So teach us about our brain. Exactly, exactly. And when we think of our triggers, we often think of the moment when we lose our cool, when we blow up and yell at our child, or when we shut down, or when we retreat. And I find that to be incomplete, because the full picture, if I may, it's the react, revert, and reduce cycle. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about those three. React, revert, reduce. Tell us more. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to start with a mom who I worked with in my social justice parenting and inner child reparenting cohort. And let's call her Denise. Okay. Denise has a five-year-old and her five-year-old is very spirited, very spunky, and her five-year-old just wants to do their own thing. And Denise would just ask and ask and ask, can you clean up this toy? Can you help me set the table? And her five-year-old just like, no. And then Denise would feel her irritation rising as her button is getting pushed because Mm -hmm. she feels disrespected. Mm, Yes. And as soon as she felt disrespected, her inner monologue keeps on going. Like, oh, you better be grateful that you're my child because if I were to do this when I were little, I would not make it, right? And then Mm -hmm. the inner monologue keeps on going. So Denise is already reacting. So then she reverts back to her old survival strategies, coping behaviors, or habits, which is yelling. So then she would yell at her five-year-old to get her five-year-old to do exactly what she wants the five-year-old to do. And yelling is not something that Denise wants to do or repeat. Yes. So after she reacts, she reverts back to yelling. And then when guilt kicks in, usually three seconds later, she reduces herself to all the labels that you can think of. I'm not disciplined enough. I'm not a good enough mom. I'm a terrible parent. The list goes on. Hmm. Yeah. And so then here comes that shame. And when we are down on ourselves, we're more likely to continue to act out of alignment with our values. Mm -hmm. And so I have found in my life, I'm more likely to continue yelling because of the shame that I've put on myself versus 
acknowledging what's happening in my brain when I'm triggered is a normal part of the human experience. And can you tell us a little bit more about what does happen inside your brain when you get triggered? Absolutely. Yeah. If I could wave a magic wand and can have all of us check that shame by the door, that would be so wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in our brain, when we're in that reactive space, we're moved into this fight, flight, freeze, fix, people please, and shut down self-protection mode. Mm -hmm. And when we're in this self-protection mode, we're no longer in that space where we're curious, connected, and caring, or that space where we know that we can be the parent we know we can be. Yeah. And when we're in fight, flight, freeze, people please, that smart part of our brain, that neocortex, is offline. It's the part of the brain that allows us to make plans, make judgment, and be quality adult. It's offline. Mm -hmm. So whatever we read last night about child development or gentle parenting or whatever that is, it's gone. We can't access that in that heat of the moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you say that what's hysterical is historical. <laughs> Can you tell me more about that phrase? I love it. What does that mean? What's hysterical is historical. Yes. So Resma Menachem, the author of My Grandmother's Hand, taught me this phrase. What's mm. hysterical is historical, meaning that when we react or behave in ways that is out of proportion of the situation, there's usually something historical there, some unhealed wound from our past that's getting triggered or scratched. So mm. when we're stuck in shame, we often, like you said, Rachel, keep on yelling or going down that path that we don't want to go down instead of pausing and wondering, what's the wound underneath that trigger mm. that I can direct my energy and attention into healing? Yeah, mm. absolutely. Do you have an example of this from your own life or from the life of someone you work with of finding the historical reason for the hysterical reaction? Yes. So I can go back to Denise. Yeah. When Denise and I were talking about the react, revert, and reduce cycle, then Denise could see that, oh, this is a cycle. And it doesn't mean that I am failing as a parent then Denise had so much more energy to be in that curious space. And then she was reflecting with me. Then what is the function of this reactivity or this trigger? Mm. And we peel another layer off. And the function is usually to protect us. Yeah. And the example that I love, which actually you discussed in episode 190, Becoming a Less Angry Mother. Oh, I love that you listened to that. Yes. I thought of that episode when I was preparing this one. So I'm glad you linked those two. I love that episode so much, Rachel. You talked about there's that split second in between your anger and your reaction. And in our case, mm -hmm. yelling, right? And this cycle happens so quickly because it needs to happen fast to protect us. Mm -hmm. And when I talked to Denise about that, we talked about this example of if we accidentally place our hand on a hot stove, what our body does immediately is retracting and removing our hand immediately from that hot surface. Mm -hmm. And our trigger and emotional reactivity does the same thing to protect us from emotional pain. Mm, so yeah. in Denise's history, 
in the past, it was not a good idea for her to lose control of the situation mm -hmm. because it would be unsafe for her. So mm -hmm. when her five-year-old was not listening and she was losing control of the situation, she got triggered and she had to yell to regain that control of the situation. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Yes. So there's that function there of protecting the knees from getting lost in that old cycle of rejection, humiliation, criticism, and those inner child wounds. Mm. And in that episode, too, you talked about Rachel sitting in the suffering. Mm -hmm. It's so hard. But Denise and I were there together, and she could peel another layer off. And then she could see that, you know, I have a mixed-race child. Mm. And I yell because I really need to teach him at five years old how to be obedient, how to play by the rule, to stay safe and protected from microaggression, preschool expulsion, or down-the-line police brutality. Mm, yeah. So, and so, of course, she's fearful and reacting and having these triggers around not only wanting to protect herself, but also wanting to protect her child. So it's a loving instinct, but it comes out in unloving ways or ways that aren't in alignment with how she wants to really show her love. Yes, absolutely. And like you said, when we remove that shame, we're able to be in this space to reflect and get curious about the mm. functionality of it and the why. And then we can ask a better question. Yeah. So Denise and I were asking, so how can we still meet your goal of keeping your child safe and protected as much as we can, but without the cost of yelling and reacting and being triggered? Mm, that's beautiful. Mm. And was she able to come up with some ideas of things to do? Yes. So she decided to spend 10 minutes a day just having that quality time with her five-year-old, reading books about diversity and inclusion and justice to teach her five-year-old different skills so that mm. in the heat of the moment, she doesn't have to resort or revert back to yelling. Mm -hmm. It makes yeah. so much sense. I've seen in my own life, um, my mother had breast cancer from the time I was six until I was 19. She passed away when I was 19. Mm. And I was a sensitive, like a lover child, you know, and I saw her go through and her body go through so much. And in my adulthood, I used to wonder, why am I so fearful of illness? It seemed like an outsized hysterical reaction. My kids would get a small fever and I would panic, like I'd go to worst case scenarios and think mm -hmm. I'm going to lose my children. Or I would be feeling off physically and I would think I have cancer. It would immediately go to that. Mm -hmm. And I had to slow down and I've done a lot of therapy yes. and realize that this is historical, that you saw your mother, the person you loved most in the world, go Bye. through so many scary, unexpected things with her body and be so sick and it makes sense that you have this reaction. So it removed the shame that I sort of felt of I'm a hypochondriac or I'm an overreactor. Mm -hmm. It helped me to just see myself with a lot more compassion. And now when those feelings come up, which they still do, mm -hmm. when I'm confronted with illness, I can say, I know where this comes from. And I can care for myself in that moment instead of sort of dismissing myself or berating myself and saying, you're ridiculous. Let's take a quick break to thank this episode's sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I recently saw a meme that made me laugh. It said, I used to think adulthood was one crisis after another. 
but I was wrong. Multiple crises, concurrently, all at once, all the time, forever. (laughs) Relatable, right? But all joking aside, life really is hard. And the only silver lining is that the hard stuff can be where the most growth happens if we allow ourselves the time and space to process what we're going through and to figure out what we're learning about ourselves. Therapy has been a tool that has helped me deepen my self-awareness through all of the crises and the hard stuff in life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule because it's done entirely online. Fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash 3in30 today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 3in30. This podcast is also sponsored by Fabric by Gerber Life. Okay, friends, I have a question, but as is true of all things with 3in30, you have to promise not to feel guilty if the answer is no. So here goes. Do you have life insurance? I'm going to have to be completely honest and tell you that I do not have life insurance right now. I did have it at one time, but the bill got stuck at the bottom of a pile and somehow we let my coverage lapse. And I have been beating myself up over that and worrying that it's going to be such a hassle to go through the process of getting coverage again. And then I heard about Fabric and was so relieved. Fabric makes planning for your financial future easier. It was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. You can even be offered coverage instantly with no health exam required. Friends, I have 10 minutes this week to work on this. I'm committing to do it, and I hope that you will too. Protect your family today with Fabric by Gerber Life. Apply in just 10 minutes at meetfabric.com slash 3 and 30. That's meetfabric.com slash 3 and 30. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash 3 and 30. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states, prices subject to underwriting and health questions. So what is your second takeaway for us for when we are feeling triggered? Mm. So the second takeaway, now that we know the why of our trigger, is to get to know the what of our trigger and Mm. get to know exactly what triggers us. Like, what about our children's behavior that really push our buttons? And sometimes it can be so overwhelming to think about what pushes our button when we're already too overwhelmed and the to-do list is so long and it never ends. So I often ask the parents that I work with to group the behaviors that push their buttons into these two categories. The first one is attachment, and then the second one is autonomy. And these two categories are based on our children's social emotional development. Okay. Yeah. And explain more, what does that mean, attachment and autonomy? Mm-hmm. What behaviors would fall under which category? Yeah. The best teacher for this is little toddlers. If you remember bringing your toddlers to a birthday party, for example, and it's a new environment and there are lots of kids, everything's so loud, you might notice that your toddler is kind of clinging on by your side, right? Scoping out the environment. And that's the attachment needs, that they need care and connection in that moment. Mm -hmm. And then when they feel safe enough and secure enough, 
you'll start to see they just kind of wander off on their own to explore the environment and engage with other people. And that's the autonomy side of it, where they're exploring the environment. And they might look over their shoulder, right? Like, mom, are you seeing me? Did you see what I just did there? Are you delighting in me? And then they might just come back and circle back around, right? To come back for that snuggle and come back for that attachment recharge, if you will. Mm -hmm. So it's the coming in for attachment and then going out to explore the environment or autonomy. Mm-hmm. And in our context, Rachel, if I can ask you to reflect from your experience with me, mm-hmm. we'll reflect on whether it's attachment category or autonomy category that tends to push your parenting button the most. Mm. And I'll go through the list. Yeah. Okay. The great. attachment is when your child is kind of clinging onto you, doesn't want to leave your side, demanding attention care and connection. So if I'm triggered when that happens, it's the attachment category. Yes. Okay. And then what's the autonomy category? The autonomy piece is the fun one. When our children are talking back, saying no, not listening to us, right? All the fun things we want them to do to be independent. Mm -hmm. And do you find that most people are more triggered by one category or the other? I find that it helps to kind of see that, oh, it's more of the autonomy side or, oh, it's more the attachment side. But equally, I have parents who are triggered equally by these two categories. Okay. So in reflecting on my own experience, I immediately thought of a moment that I had when my children were younger Mm -hmm. where they both needed me so much. So I think my daughter was about one or two and my son would have been four or five. Mm. And I remember the moment of them crying and clinging to me and they just needed so much from me. And I had this visceral reaction, like I wanted to move them away from me. Mm. And I had the thought, you cannot need me this much because I could die. And I recognized then that this was connected to my past of losing my mother and that I was triggered by how much they needed me Mm -hmm. because I realized, like, I am fragile. All Mm -hmm. human beings are fragile. Relationships are fragile. And when you need somebody this much and you lose them, it destroys you. And so I thought, whoa, I need to explore this further. I'm grateful that I had that self-reflection in the moment. I could Mm -hmm. see I need to talk to my therapist about this because I am projecting losing my own mother. It's coming into my relationship with my young children where I'm afraid to connect deeply with them because of the loss that it could bring to me or to them if they were to lose me. So that immediately came to mind as an attachment category for me. Wow. And that right there, Rachel, when you said that I could die, mm. right, and the, the urge to push them away or to have this self-talk of you can't possibly need me this much. It's the reactivity that's moving in to protect you from mm. losing yourself or being too overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And in that case, it wasn't that I was yelling at them for that. But I recognized that I was creating emotional distance with my children because of this unhealed wound that I needed to do more work on. And now as my kids get older, I think I feel less of that and more probably of the autonomy triggers of (laughs) 
my son is in middle school this year and he's growing up and my daughter is eight and a half and they're both just, they don't need me as much. And I'm less triggered by that. I'm a mom that like, I really value, I love their independence. And, but of course I feel the sense of, you can't talk to me like that. Like Mm -hmm. when they try Mm -hmm. to assert themselves as their own individuals, I feel that pushback of like, no, no, no. Like I'm the boss, Mm -hmm. you know, I, (laughs) and you will see the world the way that I see the world. Those are the things that trigger me more now that they're older. Mm, Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I wonder how it is for you right now, even to just be able to name the categories. That, Mm -hmm. oh, it's the attachment. Oh, it's the autonomy. And it's not that my child is being bad or I am failing as a parent. Mm, Yeah. I've never heard this described this way with these two categories. And it is. It's eye-opening. And I think it'll just give me something to think about Mm -hmm. as I parent over the next few weeks of, oh, that's an attachment or, oh, that's an autonomy one. And when we're unaware, when it's unconscious, we can't make it decision about how we want to react to the trigger. Absolutely. Especially when the reactivity is life or death and it's about to protect you from being overwhelmed. That's why trigger work, it's so automatic. And that's why we repeat the same pattern that we're trying to break all the time because it happens so fast. Mm -hmm. So being able to name things, Dan Siegel calls it name it to tame it. Mm-hmm. which can help us give the language and then remove shame a little bit. Yeah. So we can better prepare ourselves for that. So here's my invitation to the parents that I work with, Rachel, where you begin to name what triggers you, the words, the facial expression, the behavior category, mm-hmm. and then you prepare yourself, kind of bracing yourself mm-hmm. for impact when the behavior happens again in the future. Because you know it will. It will. It will. Yes. And you can kind of notice different bodily cues leading up to your losing your cool with your child. Right? It could yes. be like this mom I work with, she would feel this butterfly in her stomach. right? Mm-hmm. And then that sinking sensation in the chest. Mm-hmm. So she would kind of use the sensation as a reminder to, okay, I'm going to place one hand on my chest and one hand on my stomach as a cue for me to sit up a little bit taller. And then she could kind of talk herself through it that, you know what? My child needs independence and I'm going to delight in that. It's not about me or my inner child. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I love the compassionate sort of noticing the trigger and thanking it for trying to protect you almost Mm -hmm. and then saying, Okay, but I'm okay. I've got this. Thank you very much for trying to protect me, but I don't need protecting in this moment, you know? Yes. So, absolutely. That's beautiful, Rachel. And that's our third takeaway, Rachel. Okay, perfect. Yep. Is to not get rid of our triggers and to befriend it and honor it. And there's a study that's done in the 80s and it gets replicated many, many times. And it still yields the same result that I love sharing with parents all the time, that you only need to get it right 30% of the time. I have heard this study. And (laughs) as the perfectionist, straight-A student, I'm like, 30%? That's failing. Like, I only have to get it right 30%? 
I'm like, can that be right? But you're saying this study's been replicated. This has been replicated. Yes. Oh, wow. And how wonderful. What great news for us as parents. You only have to get it right 30% of the time. Wow. Exactly. And then what do you do with the other 70% when you don't get it right? The 70% is the hard part, right? Which is we go back to reconnect with ourselves and our children after we react or our buttons get pushed and we lose our cool. And Mm -hmm. we reconnect and we apologize. Yes. Like, oh, I didn't mean to do that. What can we do better next time? Let's think about it together. So there's a plan attached to it. A woman that I work with in my self-assured motherhood program recently said, like, I am a master at repair. She's like, I may not be a very patient mom, but I am a master of repair. And I said, good for you. And I loved the positivity she saw in herself mm. of like, I do lose my cool. I, But then I am so good at apologizing and saying I'm sorry and not just apologizing in a dismissive way. Mm. Like, oh, I'm sorry, but everybody loses it. Moving on. Mm. But repair, I think... That word repair really comes with it a deeper sense of like truly meaning it and and going back and fixing the rupture that happened Mm. between you and your child. And that research shows that can strengthen the bond as even stronger than if there had never been a rupture, right? Absolutely. Because if we think in terms of our children, like what do they see in us modeling that behavior in that moment? Right? Mm. They see us modeling problem-solving and not perfectionism. And then they also see us that, oh, this is what it looks like to honor your body and honor your body's need in that moment. Mm-hmm. Especially if you narrate your triggers and reactivity out loud. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I so remember, what, would that, what would that sound like? Mm-hmm. It would sound like, you know what, I'm feeling this butterfly in my stomach. And the heat in the back of my neck and my jaw is really clenching really tightly. I know I'm feeling really upset right now. You know? Mm. And when I feel upset, like I just want to like, stretch my body really quickly. Yeah. And if it's appropriate, I invite parents to do it with their children. Like, do you want to stretch with me and just take a deep breath? Whew. Mm-hmm. So we actually really modeling that problem solving and actually regulation skills with our mm-hmm. children too and get them to do that with us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I do try when I repair with my kids, I try to explain this is what was happening for me. This is what was happening in my body. This is why I reacted the way I did. And also it's not it's never okay for me to lash out at somebody else, even though I was feeling all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to teach them to notice when they're getting upset and all the, all the cues in their body, but that doesn't mean that you can just yell or hit or do whatever. Um, it doesn't make it okay what I did. And I'm asking for your forgiveness that I lost my cool with you. Beautiful, Rachel. Yeah, beautiful. Well, this has been such a wonderful conversation that I just feel calmer just talking to you. I I hope that other people listening have felt that, just felt that calm sense that, okay, I can do this. I can work through my triggers. I can be the parent that I want to be. And you have some additional resources if people want to continue learning from you. Tell them how they can find your work. Absolutely. So it's choose your own adventure, Rachel. So I'll provide three options for your listeners to choose from. 
if they'd like to join me in a small cohort of social justice curious parents and do social justice parenting work and inner child reparenting work, they can join me in the In Out and Through program. And option two is subscribe and listen to the Come Back to Care podcast. And option three is to subscribe to the newsletter. And they can find everything at comebacktocare.com. Okay, perfect. I love that you gave three options on 3 and 30. That's perfect. Three options to work with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and for being a guest on 3 and 30. This has been a really impactful conversation for me, and I'm sure it will be for the listeners as well. This is so fun for me, Rachel. What an honor, truly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was such a lovely, even healing conversation for me, and I hope it was for you as well. By way of recap, here are Nat's three takeaways for navigating parenting triggers. First, understand your brain to transform shame and guilt into action and healing. When you're triggered, it does not mean that you are a bad mom. This is a neurophysiological response that is trying to protect you from things that hurt you in your past or that you fear happening in the future. Understanding that can help you release your shame for being triggered and recognize it as a very human, very normal protective measure. And I thought of that when Nat said, when it's hysterical, it's historical. Reflecting on your story, your own past and history, can bring an understanding of where your triggers come from. Once you know that, you can make conscious decisions about how you want to move forward with self-compassion. Second takeaway, reflect on which of your children's behaviors trigger you the most and why, and then make a plan for how to address that. I love that Nat divides common triggers into two categories, those that relate to your child's attachment to you and those that relate to your child's autonomy or independence from you. Which behaviors bother you the most? When they are clingy, needy, and whiny, or when they are independent, defiant, and asserting their own will? Maybe it's a mix of both for you, but as you reflect on which of their specific behaviors trigger you the most, you can start to create a plan of action. When my child rolls their eyes at me, they are trying to assert their autonomy, and I'm going to take a deep breath and respond in this way. The more you proactively plan for triggers, the more you can sort of practice in advance how you will feel the trigger, but you can change the reaction. Third and finally, remember to reconnect and repair after a rupture. You are not going to be perfectly patient all the time, even with all the reflection and proactive planning and inner work that you do. But the good news is you only have to get it right 30% of the time to maintain a strong connection with your child. The other 70% of the time, you just have to try to go back to them and apologize. Talk through it, work through it, and model accountability, humility, and resilience. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I've put the links to several past 3 and 30 episodes about anger and yelling, practicing patience, in the show notes. I always include related episodes there if you want to dive deeper into a particular topic. You're doing great, my friends, and I'm so grateful that you're on this journey to more compassionate parenthood with me. I'm rooting for you, and I hope that you have a beautiful week with your family.